Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We're going to look at the end of chapter 15 or 14 of, of Matthew this morning. But as we begin, I want to, I want to speak to you about something that has been a, a, an awareness that's been fostered in my life in part by, by teaching in the, in the pastor's college, which has come to be something I've, I've grown to, to really enjoy because it causes me to learn and read things I wouldn't have read, read things I wasn't introduced to in seminary myself. And what has become clear to me is that there has been for at least a millennium, but probably not for two millenniums, two millennia, a, a battle within the church over the, the relationship between faith and obedience. And that battle is going on today. And it's tearing at the heart of the church. It's the central battle of our day. It really is in the church. And it's the weakness of the church that... There is no understanding of the relationship, the vital relationship between the two of these. And so this morning, we're in a passage that is all about faith. And it's going to teach us certain fundamental truths about faith. But let me sketch where we are today as we approach this passage so that you have a certain awareness of how you're going to be tempted to look at it and to think about it and to think about faith. For the first century of the life of the church, the first century, not the first century, the first millennium, the first thousand years, there really was no, there was no quarrel or battle within the church over how obedience and faith interacted. There was no question about salvation. There was no question and division over what was important, what was secondary between faith and obedience to God. It was all understood in that millennium in the way that Paul defines it in his, in his writings, which if you have become familiar with Paul, you know that Paul says it's all of God. Everything we do, everything we have, everything we are is part of the sovereign God's will. Everything is a gift. Faith obedience, everything, every good and perfect gift is from God. And so the obedience of faith is from God. The faith that is given to us, God is the author of all of these things. For a thousand years were understood. And so you, you can punctuate that thousand years by two notable theologians of the church. There are others as well that we could include in here, but I just, for your sake, and you will know these names, at about 580, actually before that about century, but you have in the middle of that, you have Augustine. And Augustine is, is perfectly Pauline in his understanding that God is sovereign and saves who he wills. And that every part of our salvation, not one part, not one half of it, not faith, not works, all of it is united as a gift we receive from God. That was Augustine. That was Paul. And we have been reading Augustine, and I've come to know it personally, that this is what Augustine taught. More recently, we've read uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, who was about 1,000 A.D. 
and 500, 600 years after Augustine. And it's fascinating to read this little book that we're finishing up our year on in church history, which, in which uh, Bernard does a, basically a treatise, not a full book, on the relationship between grace and the free will. And what he says is, we have a free will, and this is truly free will as we look at it, but that, that will that is free is bound by other freedoms that we don't have. We can't, don't have the power not to choose what is right. We don't have the power to avoid sin. We don't have other freedoms that are necessary for this free will, and so in the end, salvation, Bernard says, is entirely of God, entirely of God. It doesn't say that one part of it faith is and works we do. But in the centuries that followed Bernard of Clairvaux, who was about 1000 AD, there increasingly came to be teaching by the church that it was your works that God was looking for and that works were more important than faith and that works were actually the things that God looked to and saw as evidence of faith. Now, it sounds true, but it wasn't true because the works that they specified were the works that increased the power of the priests in the church and that brought money into the coffers of the church. You understand? And so they emphasized, they emphasized indulgences which were a means of the church making money and the church granting you the relief from the weight of your sin. They also emphasized the mass and all the associated sacraments of the church, which put people under the power of the church. If you didn't go to confession, if you didn't go to mass, if you were not faithful in attending upon the authority of the church, the church could deprive you of salvation. Salvation came through the church, and the church, literally, I'm, I'm telling you the exact truth that was taught. Salvation was in the care of the church, and if you do not satisfy the church, you are not saved. Now, the church does have power. God did give the keys of the kingdom to the church. But this is a very clear corruption of the teaching of Jesus and of the Bible. And it gave a precedence to works that was false. In response to that, there were reformers. And they began well before Luther, but Luther is the most famous of them, who said, no, you must have a living relationship to God. You must be born again. And to be born again is by faith. And Luther and his followers emphasized faith. Now, Luther didn't emphasize faith the way it's taught today. But he did say faith is, is vital. And he actually said that it, was, it preceded the obedience. And, and he taught in a way that probably led to where we are today. Although Luther himself demanded obedience and said it's vital if you're going to go to heaven. And so what we found ourselves today in is a, a world that has reacted against, and at least in the portion of the Christian world we live in, against the, 
the teachings of Roman Catholicism in the 1500s, which are basically what is taught by Roman Catholicism today, by going to the opposite extreme and saying, I can claim faith and I don't need obedience. That faith is all I need. And so we remain separated in our understanding of faith and, and obedience. It's just that we've gone to the other extreme. And we're going to look at this passage today, and I think we're going to find certain truths that are essential for our day. So I invite you to stand as we look at Matthew 14, 22 through 36, this passage which speaks about the character of faith and that reveals the ties between faith and obedience. Immediately, he, that is Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat. He's just fed the 5,000 men and the many other women and children. And go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick, and they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we ask you to speak through your word to us. Give to my words the words that are yours alone, Father. The power that comes from them, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Convict us of the truth of your word. Convict all of us. Give us conviction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is a, a great passage about faith. A powerful passage about faith. And actually, it begins with a story of faith that you may not recognize as a story of faith, but it is a story of faith. And the faith that it begins with that you may not recognize as faith, but truly is faith, is the faith of Jesus. Perfect faith. Now, we're going to spend more time on the illuminating picture that we have of faith in Peter that follows what Jesus has done, and we're going to spend time looking at his success and his failure, and both are vital, both help to define what a thing is. It, you, are, you, you cannot say it is this without saying it is not this on certain things, because a picture of what things are not is important to understanding what they are. You know the old story of the men who approached an elephant, and they, they, the blind men, and they said, they felt the legs and said, it's a tree. And uh, they can't see what it's not, can they? They can't see that there's a belly above their heads. 
in the practice of medicine early in the about 1000 1200 AD Arab physicians in the great centers of Arab learning started dissecting bodies doing autopsies and by those autopsies they learned not only how a body should look when it was in health but they learned about the the the, the causes of disease uh, and so they they were advanced a great uh, they advanced because they did autopsies and their understanding of the body and of disease because of that in a certain way we're doing an autopsy of Peter's faith here because it fails but we begin with Jesus and we're told that after a day of healing and preaching it, that ends with the feeding of the 5,000 plus the women and the children, Jesus sends his disciples off in a boat. Now staying behind them, he first dismisses the now satisfied crowds home. They have been fed. And finally alone as he intended to be at the outset of the day and actually more alone than he intended to be because he initially took his disciples he returns to the purpose that was his purpose before he arrived and the crowds were there and they spent the whole day teaching ministering healing and feeding what he intended to do he does now he goes up on the mountain he goes alone and he prays he is still remembering John remember that was the outset he heard that John had been killed and he's gone off to a remote, secluded, desolate area in order to pray and to think about his own life and John's death. And, and so he, he renews his purpose, goes up on the mountain alone, prays to God about John, about his own future. He's alone with his father. And I hope this is a practice that that is a, a regular part of your life and my life because it was a part of Jesus' life. There's no better thing than to go for a walk late in your day and to talk to God about what happened. I encourage you to do it and do it and do it day after day. It will change your life. Jesus himself relied on prayer. Of course, Jesus relied on prayer in the way that we do, by faith in God. Jesus prayed because he had faith. In his humanity, Jesus was limited. And so he had to live by the faith of, that God had given him, the faith that he had in his father. Now, while he's praying, his disciples are cutting across the lake in a fishing boat, probably a fishing boat, because that's what four of them were, fishermen. And so it's most likely that they would take a fishing boat. It's not a large boat. They're cutting across the Sea of Galilee, probably from the north or northeast to the, to the western shore, um, if we're guessing right about where they're going to the region of Gennesaret. Um, but whatever way, they're, they're going diagonally across the lake from the very north or northeast portion. They're going diagonally. And as they travel in the boat, we're told that the winds were against them. Now... The boat probably has 12 men in it. We don't know for certain whether all the disciples are there or not. But we're going to guess there's 12 men, maybe a few more, maybe a few less. But for our purposes, we're going to assume the presence of all the disciples. And if there were others or not, 
probably around 12. These are grown men. This is a fishing boat. It's not a people hauler. There is a, a recent discovery, actually made in the, the 1980s, of a fishing boat found in the mud of the Sea of Galilee that we think is probably very similar, and some of us saw it last year when we were in Israel, the kind of boat that Peter, Andrew, James, and John owned and that the, that the 12 are now in as they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. And this fishing boat is not a people hauler. It doesn't have a high freeboard. And it's not a, a, a great distance between its, its keel at the bottom and its gunnels, the sides, the top of the sides. Uh, probably if it's like this fishing boat and we would assume it was rather similar it's, it's about 43 inches somewhere between three feet and four feet high now a modern canoe is about 16 to 18 inches of freeboard uh, this, the, that distance in a canoe from the from the bottom to the top of the gunnel uh, the the boat is probably six feet wide and about 27 feet long which may sound large, but remember, a canoe is 17 feet long. And uh, about three to four feet wide, depending on what model you're buying. And so a canoe, this is 27 and seven feet, much wider. Not an awful lot longer. It's a more substantial vessel, but it's not a huge vessel. Now, there are calculators for wave size in a body of water. Plug in the dimensions of the Sea of Galilee, which is 13 miles long by 8 miles wide, with an average depth of 33 feet, and you can know at wind speeds what the wave size would be. And we know that at a real storm, the level of a storm, but it's not actually even in, in nautical terms called a storm, it's called a wind. I can't remember the term, it's something like a wind, a, a, a strong wind. Um, that if you have a 40-knot wind, all right, that's the strong wind, not a gale, not a hurricane, nothing sh well short of that. And I've been out on a lake when they've been 30-mile gusts, 40, probably 40. Probably all of you have seen 40 miles. It's a strong wind. But um, it's not uncommon to get a 40-mile-an-hour wind. If the winds were, say, 40 knots, uh, you would have in the Sea of Galilee seven-foot waves. Now, seven-foot waves are big. When you're out in the Pacific or in the Atlantic and you're body surfing, you're getting seven-foot waves. You're getting pummeled. And if you're out in a lake in a canoe and you have two-foot waves, now the freeboard's smaller, the boat's smaller, you know, the amount of exposed to the, the water, the amount above water is, is shorter, but a seven-foot wave, <laughs> a seven-foot wave is terrifying. And at night, probably the most desperate fears I've had in my life are, have been in this situation. When I've been in a boat, and perhaps some of you have been in it, with huge wind and waves, and you just can't go. You are being, and especially if it's quartering wind, which means it's not dead on. And we've got to think that that's what's going on with the disciples here. It's a quartering wind. Because then it's constantly coming into the boat. It's best to go dead on. And it may be that they've turned face forward into the wind. Um, 
Probably they're not, these boats did have sails, but probably they're not using the sail. You can't use a sail in a, in a, a wind like this to go straight into the wind. Even tacking, you're not going to make it. They're just desperate. They're trying to get to shore, and they've been going for hours. Now, in a canoe, you know, last weekend I put my canoe, my new canoe, in the water, in the Maumee River. And I said, we're going to be gone a little while, but I didn't realize the island was two and a half miles long that I wanted to go around. And uh, I, we were cooking dinner together and had a, a picnic. And uh, I took my, three of my grandsons on a five-mile trip. And uh, we were late for dinner uh, as we went around this, this, this island that's right off of, of Farnsworth Metro Park. It took us about an hour and a half to go five miles, maybe an hour and three quarters. These men, uh, remember the lake is at most 13 miles long. They've been going, it's the fourth watch of the night, they have been going hour after hour and getting nowhere. Because you've got to think that it wasn't a storm when they set out, or they wouldn't have set out like this. But they're caught by it, in the, and then they're stalled, and they're there just for hours at the mercy of the wind, terrified, battered, no doubt bailing out the boat, and it's desperate. This is the situation, and it's faced by everyone, all 12 and Jesus, and it's in this crisis that we see the perfect faith of Christ, the initially victorious faith of Peter, the failed faith, the weak faith of Peter, every type of faith. And we see the, 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 the counter of faith, which is doubt and unbelief. Jesus comes towards the boat. And as he comes, he's walking on the water. I, I take it that we all understand that Jesus is our supreme example in all things, and that, that includes his faith. It may be strange to think of Jesus needing faith, but he did. He looked to Scripture and used Scripture to counter temptation from Satan. That's trust in God's word. That's faith. He says that his will was to do the will of his Father in heaven. That's faith. That's faith in God. That would be a great definition of faith. My will is to do the will of him who sent me, of God, of the one who formed me. Faith. Scripture speaks of the faith of Jesus. We usually translate it, our translators usually translate it as faith in Jesus, but the, literally it's very often the faith of Jesus. And Scripture encourages us to have the faith of Jesus. Jesus encourages us towards this as well. I hope you understand that Jesus in this passage and the Holy Spirit by causing it to be recorded in the pages of scripture is encouraging you to have the faith that walks on water. This is an encouragement. This is a call to have faith. And not just a general vague faith, but a faith that is powerful and that accomplishes things, a faith that walks on water. Or faith that does something equally powerful, equally wonderful. Because 
we may never be in this situation where the faith that is needed is a faith to walk on water, but we will always face a situation like this, right? Of some kind where we need faith and the power of God to get through it. Jesus says to us that we can cast a mountain into the heart of the sea if we have faith. And I'm going to give some guidelines to what faith is. It's not just saying cast you into the sea or the mountain. There's more to it. And that was understood by the disciples. They didn't need Jesus to explain it. But we do in this day of weird thinking, bad thinking about faith. He says to his disciples and their followers that they will do greater things than he has done when the Holy Spirit comes. And it's in the aftermath of the disciples marveling at one of his miracles. He says that by faith we will do all sorts of wonderful things. And so what we see here in Jesus, his walking on the water, is a template for our own faith and our own power. And there are certain things we need to understand as we seek the power that Jesus has here in our own life, the power of faith. Begin by saying that this is obviously an unnecessary trip that Jesus takes. He could have walked around the edge of the lake and it would have been easier. It's always easier and less windy on the edge than it is in the center of a lake. You run for the shores when you're in a lake or on a body of water and there's a fierce storm. Go to the shore because there will be less wind. He could have met his disciples walking around the curve of the lake, whichever direction it was needed to go, had an easier trip, but he knew his disciples' danger and the despair that they were likely feeling. Now, actually, they're not in danger because God is caring for them. They're not going to die. Jesus could have easily calmed the storm from the mountain or the shore. He could have said, be still from the shore, and it would have been still. But he actually walks to them. He knows their predicament, and he walks to them on the water to show in visible form his power and the power he offers them through faith and to demonstrate not only that act of his humanity, but also his sovereignty as deity, his ability to say, peace be still to the storm and have it obey. And so he's displaying for them how they should be and he is in himself at the same time showing the power that is theirs when they trust by his calming the storm. In his deity, he's showing what we should trust in. In his humanity, he's showing how we should trust. This is a miracle, a great miracle, walking on water. In fact, we, we say of people today, he can't walk on water because it's such an illustrious miracle. But walking on water is not easy, is it? Now, you've seen probably Sunday school pictures of this event. And if, if I remember correctly, the pictures I see show sort of a serene Jesus kind of floating above the water with maybe two-foot waves around him and dark and lightning, all right? But that can't be what's going on here, can it? Because Jesus is actually walking on the water. He's not floating above the water. He's walking on the water. Right? It says it. And when Peter gets out, he's walking on the water. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? He's not floating an inch above the water. He's walking on water. Now, this is a storm, and the storm is fierce. And in the end of the passage, we're told that Jesus calms the storm. But he doesn't calm the storm until the end of the passage. And so what does that mean about Jesus walking on the water? Well, it means he's walking up and down waves, right? It means that he's walking through the, the wind. It means that he's being hit by everything the disciples are being hit by in the, in the boat, except he's walking on the water. His face is lashed by wind and rain, but he's walking towards his disciples because he loves them and he cares for them. He wants to teach them and deliver them. And this walk on water into the wind and in the face of the waves is the walk of the rest of his life. Because he spends every day from here on and every day prior to this, but every day especially from here on, he spends walking on water. What do I mean? He spends it by faith in God doing miracles in the face of winds and waves and hostility and troubles on his way to deliver his people and he finally walks to his destination when he reaches the cross. And so Jesus is walking on water towards the cross. Am I making sense? He's walking to Calvary. That's where he's going. He's not walking to a resort on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's walking, and he's walking to Calvary. He's walking against Satan. Satan is buffeting him. He's walking to preserve his children, his disciples. He is doing what he was called to do, and that trip ultimately culminates and reaches its end at Calvary. He's walking on, he's walking on water, yes, towards his death. Now, I want to say this is perfect faith, but Jesus warns us, don't think that a master is less than his servants. Actually, he says, don't think that servants are greater than a master. But don't think Jesus is walking in this way, and you're going to walk on water towards glory and the world standing and fawning over you and saying, oh, isn't he great? Isn't he great? No. God will enable you by faith, if you have faith, to walk on water, if need be. Or to do the equivalent. But it's going to be towards the same end. Serving God. Giving up your life for God. Facing the hostility of the world and of Satan, the prince of this age. You will walk on water, but don't think it's going to be a walk that is floating above the trouble. It will be walking through the trouble. Now, I want to turn to the faith of Peter. We've said all we need to say about the faith of Jesus and I want to turn to Peter and what we find here I want to close by saying is is three forms of faith in Peter the first form is the faith that reaches out to Jesus that listens to Jesus when Jesus says Take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come. I want to come to you on the water. Now the two things to understand about this initial powerful faith of Peter. First, what is it that Peter is looking to? What is it that he is basing this request on? 
Is it that he wants to walk on water? Is it a desire to walk on water? Well, yes, in a way. But he has absolutely no faith in his own ability to walk on water, does he? What he is looking to, as he travels across these waves, in the midst of this fierce storm, which he ignores initially, successfully, what he's looking to is Jesus. And I need to say that this is the basis of faith. Faith is based not on walking on water, but getting to Jesus. Faith's end is God. Faith's end, faith's foundation and its goal is the nature and character of God, a loving God. A supremely powerful God, sovereign over everything. A God who loves you as his child. You look at this God and you say, that's my God and that's my Father. And that's the wellspring of faith. Faith is based in a person. It's not based on some goal or some end that you want. Let me illustrate this with a story I've told often. Brother, older brother came down with leukemia. My parents took him to a charismatic healing service. They were convinced he had been healed. They told everyone he'd been healed, even his doctors. And right about that time, he went into remission, and they thought, yeah, he's been healed. The leukemia came back. Danny died. Teaching my father and my mother an important lesson. Their faith had been in their faith. You understand? I believe, I believe, rather than in a good God who had Danny in his arms and would care for him. Their focus had not been on God, but on their desires, and their faith had been in the power of themselves to force God and to will God into action because they wanted it. Am I making sense? And very often, this is what you define and I define as our faith. It's what we want. But faith is looking to God. Faith begins with a person, a character, a power, a nature, a love, a father. And if that is not the foundation and the goal, the beginning and the end of our faith, then we're just in wish fulfillment mode, name it and claim it mode. Second, notice the second important thing is Peter is looking to a person when he's powerful. The second important thing to notice about his faith is that his faith is, is based on a command of God. Now, if you read this passage and didn't notice this, you're probably not, you're probably in the majority. You're not in the minority. Do you notice what Peter does? He doesn't say to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you on the water. I'd like to come to you. He says, command me. Command me to come to you on the water. 
Why? Because he understands that faith begins in obedience to a divine command. Faith is not divorced from obedience. If you want some great thing from God, you had better have a command of God to claim his power on behalf of you. It is not simply what you want. It is the command of God. And so Peter doesn't says, say, let me walk on the water. He says, command me to walk on the water. If there is no divine command, if there is no word of God, if there is no passage that you point to and say, this is God's command, don't be claiming faith. You know that faith is so tied to obedience that faith itself is obedient. And faith is a form of obedience. Faith is required by God. In the Old Testament as much as in the New. The just shall live by faith. God says it in the Old Testament and only repeats it in the New. Faith is required. The heroes of faith in the chapter on faith in Hebrews are all people who lived in Old Testament times and lived by faith. Faith is a requirement of God. He tells us to believe him. Jesus says, says to the disciples, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. <laughs> it's a recipe for faith. Take courage. Dispel your fears. Do not be afraid, it's me. Focus on me, put away your fears, and obey me. Not only the act of faith is required by God, but the content of faith is specified God. And so you must be obedient in what you believe. Not just in believing, but in what you believe. You don't define who God is, what he does. You don't have the right to say, I don't like the Trinity. It's in the Bible. You can't say, well, I think of Jesus like this. And then go against the word of God. You must believe obediently. You cannot turn against obedience in your faith and have it be faith. Finally, the Bible speaks of the obedience of faith a number of times. And we understand that obedience of faith, that obedience that is the obedience of faith. We cannot understand it to include only the act of faith and the content of faith, but to exclude the fruit of faith. Faith is always working towards a goal, and that goal will always be obedience from, from faith to faith. Faith here and faith here. Faith is obedient. Faith leads us to obedience. Faith is obedience. Faith is our life from A to Z. There's no divorcing faith and obedience. Now, initially, Peter's faith is amazing. There in the storm, in the midst of these waves, the wind, in the dark of the night, he says to Jesus, command me. And Jesus does. And in faith, in obedience, you understand, that obedience is to the command of Jesus to get out of the boat and come, but it's also 
In response to Jesus' initial statement, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. In that obedience of faith, Peter gets out of the boat and he actually walks on the water. An incredible faith, even if it's just momentary. But we need to understand from Peter the nature and origin of this kind of strong faith. This strong faith comes in response to a command. It is itself obedient. It bases itself on the will of God. If you have a desire and you are claiming it and living for it and that desire has no root in the word of God but it's for your own comfort or your own happiness, that is not faith. And I would say to you it's not faith because God's gift to you, his will for you, is always better than what you want. All of us know this. The very best things that God has done in my life have been the things he said no to, which troubled me so much initially, only to realize he had something better. So I want to speak about dead faith and, and then conclude with weak faith. Peter doesn't remain above the waves, he falters. We read, Jesus said, come. He got out of the boat and walked in the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And this is what happens whenever we lose faith in God. Now, understand that this passage teaches us, this portion teaches us something vital about the character of faith. We often think that faith is visualization, that if we lock onto the thing, we're going to receive it. And so we try to maintain this kind of locked on dedication and devotion to the thing we want. I believe it, I believe it, I believe it, we say. We tell ourselves not to doubt. But faith in scripture is not in a thing or a result, it's in God. Faith is not that I can walk on water. Faith is that if God wants me to, I'll do that to do his will. Faith is focused on God, not on the thing we desire. But dead faith, dying faith and dead faith, is not focused on a good and powerful God. And as a result, it looks around at what it's been called to do by God and it says, no, I can't do this. How many places in life have you saying that you're operating by faith said to God, no, I can't do this. I can't risk my job. I can't do any of these things. I can't do it. Brothers and sisters, we're entering an age where Christians need to have courage. It is going to be required of us that we have courage for God as Christians in this nation. We must understand that our focus is on God and his glorious power and love for us and that we are being obedient even though it's costly, walking through the winds, climbing the waves on our way to death if need be. Because this is the glory of faith. It's natural to fear. Faith is powerful because it doesn't give in to fear. Fear is toxic to faith. Fear is deadly. And so we see Peter sink. And then we see the final stage of Peter's faith, which is which is obviously a return to some faith, but it's a weak faith. And that comes when seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, 
he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, it may be that you think that crying out to God, Lord, save me, is the essence of faith. But notice that it's after Peter says that that Jesus rebukes him. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He doesn't see the cry, Lord, save me, as faith. He responds saying, why is your faith so weak? He's still holding Peter by the hand because it tells us that after that they get in the boat. He's still holding Peter by the hand. He's standing there. He's looking Peter in the eye in the midst of the waves. And he's saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I wish Jesus would appear like that to us when we have fear. What a gift it would be. But we're going to do greater things than Peter. Because we don't have Jesus walking on the water showing us his power, but we're going to walk on the water. Now, what is wrong here and why is this weak faith? The guy cries out for help. Isn't that faith? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? The answer is clear. Faith with God inevitably and invariably leads to success. Faith is victory. It's not an excuse for failure. Faith is always victorious. I want to end by mentioning again a sermon preached by a candidate for ordination in our former presbytery when we were part of the Presbyterian Church in America. A sermon I've thought about for a year and a half now since I heard it that I think every member of Presbytery except me found perfectly orthodox and I was just on Zoom so I couldn't do anything. And the young man seeking ordination kept repeating that we belong to God and we are saved only because we come to God with empty hands. All right? This is the evangelical definition of faith. I come to you, God, with empty hands. I come to you with empty hands. My hands are empty. And he said that over and over and over. And isn't this Peter crying out, save me? And Jesus says, you have little faith. God expects you to act on faith, not just to cry out. The Bible is filled of examples of God saying to men who are crying out to God. Now, filled, that's maybe a little exaggeration. There are a number of examples in the Bible of God saying, hey, get with it. I have my plan. He says it to Joshua after Achan. He says it to Samuel after the rejection of Saul. Get with it. I have my plan. Stop crying out to me. Stop crying out. This view of faith, this false, hollowed-out shell of faith that that is the faith of our day is an empty and powerless faith with no ability to save and embraced as true faith. It's as dangerous to our spiritual lives as the trust in works of Roman Catholicism. Every bit is deadly. Every bit as much something that takes us away from actually knowing God and being born again to rejoicing in our weakness. We are not weak when we have faith because our God is not weak. Because our God is filled with love for his children. We 
may be going to Calvary, but we're supported and we're walking on water the whole way. This is the Christian life. This is faith. Do you have faith? Is your faith demonstrated by your obedience? Do you have the obedience of faith? Do you remember that faith and obedience are the obverse and reverse, the head and the, the tail of the same coin? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the perfect faith of Jesus, the powerful faith that we see in Peter, and then for illuminating us as to our failures in faith by Peter's. We thank you that that man became a rock that the whole church was built on. And I pray, Father, that you'll make us rocks by faith. Give us living and powerful faith. Reveal your face to us, the loving face of our Heavenly Father filled with power and love. And may we look to you and, and may we walk on water. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.